0: can grab a seat. Uh, so if you've been in this ministry for any length of time, uh, you likely know that I have this deep and abiding fondness for old dead theologians, uh, like the are the better, I think. And that's not because I don't think that there aren't good people doing good work in our day and age. There's a lot of great modern theologians. There's a lot of great uh, modern Bible scholars, a lot of great modern songwriters. God is doing a work in his church even now. Just because something's old doesn't make it better. All of the heresies are old, and that doesn't make them good. But one of the things that I like about older theologians and and older people that are writing on issues of what it means to be a Christian and, and what Uh, the call of Scripture is on our lives, is that they don't share the same blind spots that we do. Uh, You may or may not recognize this, but by virtue of being born in this particular wing of the world, you have blind spots. Uh, There are things that you will never see, no matter matter how close they are to you, no matter how in front of you they may be, because you've been conditioned by virtue of your place in the world to not notice them. Uh, It's sort of like, If you've ever driven the same route day in and day out and then your car breaks down and you have to walk that route, you go, I had no idea any of this stuff was here. I've passed it day in and day out, but I never really saw it. And it's the same way in our day and age. There are issues that we face in the church. There's issues we face in society that because it's our society, it's our day and age, we just don't see them. We don't see them with the sort of clarity that we ought to. And it's the same in every point in human history. Every culture, every society, every era of the church has blind spots. And so it's helpful to read someone with different blind spots than our own so that we might have a little bit more clarity. And I don't think there's anybody better in the history of the church to read, if you're going to read someone who's old and dead, than a bishop from the city of Hippo named Augustine. Augustine was a bishop in North Africa. And he's considered to be one of the greatest theologians in the history of Christianity. But Augustine did not start out a bishop. He didn't really even start out a Christian. I guess nobody starts out a Christian. Uh, But Augustine was born into a home uh, with a father who was a pagan uh, and a mother who was a devout Christian woman named Monica. And very shortly into his life, Augustine decided that he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with the faith of his mother. He didn't really want anything to do with the faith of his father either. Uh, Augustine wanted to do his own thing. And so he sort of launched himself headfirst into this life of debauchery. Augustine loved food, which makes him resonate with me. Uh, Augustine loved alcohol, which, straight edge, no way, Um, but Jesus wasn't straight edge, so I get that, Uh, and Augustine loved sex, and so Augustine, by modern standards, probably had an eating disorder, probably was an alcoholic, and probably was a sex addict, Uh, but coupled with those loves and those drives, Augustine was a brilliant philosopher, so he was a professor, eating disorder, alcoholic, sex addict. And he actually, during the course of about 20 years after he left his mother's home, uh, joined multiple cults. So now we have a college professor, cultist, food addict, alcoholic, sex addict. Augustine went through radical transformations in his life, all the while thinking Christianity is not plausible, it does not make sense, it's entirely ridiculous, until he met another bishop named Ambrose. And Ambrose was the intellectual Christian that Augustine needed to begin to think, maybe my mom was onto to something. But Augustine accepted Christianity intellectually far before he ever would have considered himself a Christian because Augustine loved food and alcohol and sex way more than he loved the idea of Christianity, which he intellectually could accept was probably true. And so Augustine, in his biography, records this prayer that he would pray to God, where he would say, God, deliver me from my vices, just not today. Ultimately, Augustine was not moved to become a Christian by what he knew. He knew for months upon months upon months that the gospel was probably true. But his loves were elsewhere. He wasn't willing to change. It wasn't until uh, the breaking point that he experienced under a fig tree Uh, when finally the levy breaks in Augustine's life, and he doesn't simply know that the gospel is true intellectually, but now he loves the God of the gospel and longs to follow him. And he never forgets throughout his life the power that love has to drive someone to act in a way that intelligence doesn't. So one of the, the great insights of Augustine, one of the things that, that he understands that we fail to recognize is we don't often do what we know, we do instead what we love, sometimes in direct contradiction to what we know is true. He writes a book uh, right after the fall of the Roman Empire, this interesting thing had happened where Christians had equated the nation that they were living in with God's chosen nation. Does that sound familiar? And then the Roman Empire fell and they said, God's country is gone. Oh, no. No. What's going to happen to the kingdom of God? And Augustine writes what's called the city of God, and he says, you've got this totally wrong. From the garden on, metaphorically speaking, there have always been two kingdoms. There's been the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man that's interested in itself, in propagating its ideas and its ideals, and then there's the kingdom of God. And what marks the two kingdoms is not, first and foremost, their beliefs. It's their loves. The kingdom of man is marked by love of self, uh, love of things, uh, love of self-preservation. The kingdom of God is marked by love of the triune God and being loved by God. Because he understands, again, this truth. We don't do what we know. We do what we love. But we talk like we do what we know. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched one of your friends make a really stupid decision. Uh, I know you've done that. But I wonder if you've ever commented on that stupid decision. He should know better. The fact is, he probably does know better. It's rare that someone makes a stupid decision that they don't know that they shouldn't make. It's just that they want with all of their heart to make it. Not to drive this too close to home, but it's the reason why you've gotten back together with your ex 45 times, right? It's not because you don't know that they're a turd. You do. You know full well how terrible they are, but you love that turd, and you're going to keep doing not what you know, but what you love, The most powerful force for the gospel in the world is someone who does not simply know the truth of the gospel, does not simply know intellectually the God of the gospel, but loves the gospel and loves the God of the gospel. When heart and mind are united together, it becomes a powerful force. But when our loves drift to darkness, it doesn't so much matter what you know, you'll do what you love. And when our loves are wrong, when we love the wrong things, we're, we're capable of terrible things. We're in the book of First Kings, and in chapter 3, something is said of Solomon that is never said of anybody else in the Old Testament. In chapter 3, it is said of Solomon, Solomon loved the Lord. And for all of the great figures in the Old Testament, all of, all of the incredible characters who've, who've lived these godly lives, Solomon is the only one of whom it is said he loved the Lord. But by chapter 11, our text for the evening, something has changed. Let me read it for us. Would you hear the word of God with me? Chapter 11 of First Kings, verses 1 through 9. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. We're jumping back into 1 Kings after a couple weeks off. And I mentioned in our last sort of installment of this series that by chapter 10, an awful lot of time has passed between the events of chapter 1. Like the inclination for us in reading the Bible is to think that it maybe takes 10 times the length of time that it took for us to read the text out loud. So it takes you like maybe 45 minutes to read the first 10 chapters of First Kings, and you go, ah, it's probably a couple weeks' time, a couple months' time has passed, but the Bible telescopes time. It tells long sequences of events in very short bursts. So what we see at the beginning of chapter 9 is it's been 20 years in the life of Solomon between chapter 1 and chapter 9. Solomon is a long way from the boy who sat in his father's throne room as David takes his last breaths. And it's likely probably been another 10 or 15 years between chapter 9 and chapter 11 because we're told that everything that just happened and what we read, this happens when Solomon is an old man, 50, 60, 70, who knows? Solomon has grown in years, and he's also grown in marital partners by about 700, which is insane. But it's important to recognize that Solomon's marrying of all of these foreign women is a violation of two commandments of God. The first of which is is that God says in Deuteronomy that the king should not marry many women. So the whole like 700 wives, he's already breaking the rules. But, But the other commandment in Deuteronomy is that the king should not marry foreign women, specifically of the tribes and the nations that are listed. And it's easy for us in our society to hear this and read into it our current national climate. Uh, because we're, we're post-Jim Crow South, we're post-racism. We're not post-racism, but we're post-slavery. We think of marriages between nations being forbidden as though this is done on ethnic grounds. Solomon can't marry people who are a different ethnicity than him. But that's not really what's, what's going on in the Bible. It's not that the women that Solomon marries are from other nations, that... That causes it to be forbidden. It's that the women that Solomon marries worship other gods. That's what's at the heart of it. It's not that they're from a different country or a different culture. It's that they worship different gods. That's why the prohibition stands. And that's, that's rooted in something that I think is just profoundly true. That we become like the people we marry. We take on the best and worst characteristics of those people. I can't speak from experience. But I can speak from observation. I've got a lot of friends who I've known pre- and post-marriage. And as the years go on, they become like their spouse. In more ways than one. They don't like, look like their spouse normally. But they begin to talk like their spouse. They begin to, to pick up some of the, the phrases, the way that, that their spouse talks. They pick up some of the idioms that they use. They pick up some of their spouse's anxieties. They begin to worry about the things that their spouse worries about. They, they pick up their spouse's passions. They begin to care about the things that their spouse cares about. Sometimes they pick up their spouse's politics and other times they never do and it's a perpetual war. But there is something about the covenant of marriage that unites two different people and they begin to, to become alike. Solomon unites himself not to one person but hundreds of people who worship hundreds of gods and over the years their gods become his gods. And it's likely that Solomon never stops worshiping Yahweh. He never stops worshiping the one true God, but he becomes a henotheist. That is to say that he goes, well there's other gods out there and I particularly like Yahweh, but Moloch seems all right by me too. And so he adds to the one true God an awful lot of other gods that he'll worship in addition. But there's an interesting thing that that describes the way that Solomon relates to the women that he marries. We're told that he has 700 wives and concubines and that he clings to them. It's said in verse 2, he clings to them in love. It's interesting in the Old Testament, this phrase is not normally used to describe people's marital or romantic relationships. The, The phrase to cling to in the Old Testament almost always exclusively describes someone who has put their hope, their confidence, and derived uh, their joy from God. Like, righteous people in the Old Testament are said to have clung to Yahweh, to to cling to the one true God. That's what this term is used to describe more often than not, and it likely would have been true at some point in Solomon's life, that it could be said, Solomon clings to the Lord. uh, That that in uh, the Lord, Solomon uh, places all of his hope, all of his confidence His joy comes from the Lord. But now it's no longer true of Solomon. With one hand, he has let go of the Lord. He no longer clings to the Lord. He now clings to something and someone else. A whole lot of someone else's. And and it's interesting to me that that the way that God has designed the human heart is that whatever you cling to, whatever you place your hope in, whatever you derive your joy from, you will do anything to appease. So when Solomon clings to the Lord... Solomon walks in righteousness. Solomon is a good king. Solomon builds the temple. But Solomon has loosed his grip on the Lord. He clings now to his wives. He derives his hope from them, his joy from them, his confidence from them, and he will do whatever it takes to make them happy because that's what makes him happy. This example may fall on deaf ears, but I, um, I grew up in, like, punk bands hardcore bands, death metal. I know all of you are huge death metal fans. Um, and, and when I first sort of got into like the, the music community, there was a, a solid group of people that were getting into this sort of music at the same time uh, who would have considered themselves believers. Uh, it could have been said of them that they cling to the Lord if we want to use this Old Testament terminology. But this interesting change happened over the first few years of sort of our time uh, starting bands and playing shows and touring and doing things like this. I, I watched my friends loose their grip on the Lord. And-, and I watched them tighten their grip around the community. I, I watched them let go of wholly being uh, committed to and devoted to uh, the triune God, and I watched them tighten their grip on the value of this particular community, and, and, and this, is, this is what happens, is we will do whatever it takes to satisfy what we have clung to. And I'll tell you, being an Orthodox Christian in punk rock is like the least popular thing you can do, and it's a surefire way to make sure that your band is not really widely accepted. And so once, once this is let go of, what, what I've watched happen over the last 10 years of me doing this is I've watched my friends that have clung to this community, have derived their joy from this community, have derived their hope from this community, jettison one by one central convictions around the gospel and ultimately some of them the gospel itself. Why? Because they'll do whatever it takes to be accepted and receive their joy and their hope from this community because it is now what they cling to. And it will come at the expense of the God who has saved them. This is what happens with Solomon. Before Solomon ever builds a temple to an idol, he lets go of God, and he lays hold of his 700 wives and says, I will do whatever it takes to appease this new God in my life. But it's interesting. Maybe you notice this, that when, um, when I read the text out loud, Solomon's heart, the human heart in general, is mentioned over and over and over again. In verse 2, God says you should not enter into marriage with these foreigners because they'll turn your heart after other gods. Verse 3 says that his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4 says when Solomon was... Old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as was the heart of his father David. The word heart gets used over and over and over again. This is not because the author of 1 Kings is like you trying to write a 5,000-page report and he needs to restate the same things over and over and over again to make the word count. That's not what's happening. The repetition of this term heart is intentional. The ESV doesn't totally do justice to this, um, In chapter 3, when Solomon asks God for wisdom, the the literal translation of the Hebrew is that God gave him a wise heart. The ESV translates it wise mind so that you can understand the point. And in chapter 10, when uh, we're told that the nations are coming to Solomon, they're coming to hear the wisdom that God has put in his heart. Again, the ESV translates it mind. And now we hear that that heart that God filled with wisdom is turned away from the God who's given it wisdom. I stopped by the, the Stow's life group this week. I know some of you guys are, and girls are in that life group. Um, and after Stephen kicked all of you out, Stephen and I just hung out and talked for a while. Uh, and it's not because we didn't want to hang out and talk with you all. But one of the things that, that he and I were talking about that I've come to be increasingly aware of in the last few years Is the way that so often our our giftings, the the gifts that the Spirit gives us, become weapons that are used against us. So, I would would venture to say that I probably have something of the gift of discernment. I don't say this to freak you out, but if you're lying to me, I normally know you're lying to me. You think you're slick, but no. I just have this tendency where where I can kind of just pick up on things. But what can happen in my life is that that gift that that I think God gives for the building up of the body, it becomes a curse because I start to get really paranoid. I'm like, ooh, I got a bad feeling about that. They're probably lying. And sometimes they're not, and I'm just in overactive paranoia mode. It's not discernment. It's me being fearful. Or or maybe you're the sort of person who has this gift of, of a sensitive conscience, and believe me, that's a gift. Like when you really feel conviction of sin, That is a gift from God to you. But I can tell you that I'm sure that there's people in this room whose consciences are so sensitive that you feel crushed under the weight of sins that you've never actually committed. Like, you have a hair-trigger conscience where this gift from God now becomes a curse because you feel guilty of everything, even when you haven't done anything. This gift that God gives becomes a curse, I would say I probably have the gift of teaching. At least I hope I do or I'm in the wrong job. But if I use that gift of teaching to promote heresy in compelling and beautiful ways, it becomes a curse to the people of God. My my point is this. I think Satan is well and fine with the people of God having all sorts of spiritual gifts so long as they're used in the service of darkness uh, rather than to advance the kingdom. We're never told at any point that Solomon's heart ceases to be wise. Solomon remains wise, but as his heart turns from the Lord, all of that wisdom is now used to construct temples for idols rather than temples for the one true God. Solomon's wisdom, which was given as a gift, becomes a curse, as is true with all of us in some ways. Solomon constructs these temples These high places, as the text calls it. He constructs them for uh, the gods of the uh, Ammonites. He constructs them for the gods of Moab. He constructs them for the gods of all of his 700 wives. But it's interesting, again, this emphasis on the heart. Because that phrase, heart, is repeated over and over and over again, and it said again and again and again that Solomon's heart was turned, that his heart was turned to other gods, that his heart was turned away from the Lord. There's something going on in the Hebrew here that you may not pick up on it. The, the Hebrew verb here for Solomon's heart turning is actually a parody of Solomon's name, um, this happens uh, in my circle of friends. We've got a friend named Rob who makes bad choices and consequently produces problems for himself. And so when he does that, we call his problems problems," because he's initiated them. Um, this happens in my own life. When I make bad choices and cause problems for myself, people call them travesties, right? Ha ha, it's so funny. Your name's Travis, you make bad choices. <laughs> I'm not salty. Um, the, the point is, the name is parodied for, for the purpose of kind of tying you into the bad choices you make. Um, Solomon's name is parodied here; that that Solomon's name is sort of mocked every time it says that his heart turns away. It, here's the point that the author's trying to make: that when Solomon's heart turns from the Lord, he becomes a parody of himself. When Solomon's heart turns away from the one true God, he becomes something less than Solomon. He's no longer his namesake. He becomes a joke. And I realize, man, that there are, uh, I'm sure, people in this room who are all over the place spiritually, and, and all this talk about idolatry seems like wildly foreign to you. Like you haven't noticed any stone images that people are bowing down to on State Road 60. And so I, I want us to understand here that, that all this talk about idols and idolatry in in the Bible goes it goes deeper than the worship of physical objects. Because see, all of these idols that Solomon worships they represent something. Astoreth is the god of sex and fertility. Moloch is the god of the stars. Mammon is the god of money. Right? These gods that are worshipped they're worshipped because they theoretically can grant joy through the things they represent the the bible doesn't see idolatry so much as us worshiping physical objects as it does us placing anything in the position which the one true god belongs placing anything as as the source of our hope and our joy and our affection allowing anything to become the, the source of our delight and, and in that sense idolatry is pervasive in our culture even if we're not building stone statues we still have idols of sex and money and power we have idols constructed in the image of our own happiness where we think that the highest good is that we would be happy no matter what it costs anyone else. We live in a culture of idolatry even if we don't live in a culture of stone temples and statues and the lie in our culture of idolatry is that in chasing after these other things we're expressing ourselves. We're expressing our true self. How many people have <laughs> I heard go off the deep end in the same ways that Augustine did with sex and drugs and food and say, I'm finding myself. This is just me being me. But the Bible wants to stop us in our tracks there. Because when Solomon goes after idols, he does not become more human, he becomes less human. When Solomon's heart turns from the Lord, he doesn't become more like Solomon, he doesn't become his best life now, a better version of him. He becomes less than Solomon. The pursuit of sin and idolatry and placing in the position of the one true God anything that stands beneath him, it doesn't make us more like ourselves. It makes us less of what we truly are. Solomon, in his heart, turns from the Lord, the source of his wisdom, and he somehow becomes less than himself, not more. It's worth thinking about the gods that Solomon worships. We don't get all of their names, but we're told that they are specifically the gods worshipped by Moab, uh, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. There's this pattern in the ancient world where people tended to choose to worship the gods of the nations that conquered them. The idea was this, like, hey, if this god helped this people group beat us up, maybe if we make this God happy, he'll help us beat that people group up. So it was sort of this like, let's see if we can get on this God's good side, since we were obviously on his bad side when we got invaded. But the interesting thing about Solomon is that all of the gods that he worshiped are the gods of people that Israel already conquered. The, the, The gods that Solomon worships have not proven themselves to be stronger than the God of Israel. The gods that Solomon worships have not proven themselves to be more worthy of his hope or his affection or his joy. They are defeated gods. They are conquered deities that have shown themselves to not have the power to save or bring joy or life. Solomon is not going after something better than the one true God. He's settling for something less. He's bending the knee to gods he knows cannot save. Is this not a picture of what we do every time we sin? that we go after lesser things that have proven themselves to be fleeting. One of the gods that Solomon worships is a god called Moloch. He's called the Abomination of the Ammonites. We don't know a lot about Moloch. We know what the Bible says and some sort of passing references, but what we do know about Moloch is that he was worshiped through child sacrifice. And so if you Google Moloch, uh, and look at some of the pictures, one of the things that you can see is, is what people believe was uh, the shape of an altar for Moloch, and it's this, this um, ox, and in its chest cavity is a furnace, and its arms are laid out like this, and, and the belief was that they would place their children on the arms, and the child would roll into the furnace, and they would offer their children literally to the fires of Moloch. This was how they worshipped this god. This is the god that Solomon chooses to worship in his idolatry. Solomon builds a temple for Moloch, we're told at the end of our text, on the mountain east of Jerusalem, so that his wives, and maybe even Solomon himself, can go offer their children to this false god. That mountain east of Jerusalem is in full view of the temple that Solomon built for the Lord. So... so, See the, the blasphemy here that is taking place. That in the full sight of this place that God himself has chosen to dwell, Solomon builds an altar so that Israel can go offer their sons to a false god. It's, I mean, it's a horrific chapter of Scripture to see how far Solomon falls from chapter three, someone who loved the Lord. But the temple, not the temple, but, but rather the mountain east of Jerusalem is mentioned again in Scripture. Actually, it's mentioned several times again in Scripture. The mountain east of Jerusalem by New Testament times has come to be called the Mount of Olives. And The Mount of Olives appears in all of the Gospels because it's the mountain that Jesus ascends on the night when he's betrayed. No doubt, walking on top of the ruins of this place that Solomon offered his children to false gods. And this astounding reversal happens. Because on the very same mountain that Solomon offered his sons and daughters to appease a false God that could not save, the one true God says to Israel, I do not ask you for your sons, but I offer my son in your place so that by his death you might live.